On this episode, I'm in the room with Kevin Van Hooser discussing the role of pastors as public theologians. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 49. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so visit my blog at ryanhughley.com to find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This week, I'm in the room with Kevin Van Hooser. Dr. Van Hooser is the research professor of systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity and the co-author of the new book, The Pastor as Public Theologian. In my conversation with Dr. Van Hooser, we discuss the liabilities of being a biblical scholar, rediscovering the biblical identity of the pastoral office, and what a day in the life of a theologian looks like. Dr. Van Hooser was kind enough to invite us to his office to talk about this and so much more. So come on in the room for my conversation with Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. Dr. Van Hooser, thank you so much for coming on in the room. Greatly appreciate it. I want to start by talking a little bit about you and what you are doing here now at Trinity. You currently serve as the research professor of systematic theology here at Trinity. So what exactly does that mean? And uh, what are your responsibilities here at the university? Uh, thank you for having me in the room. Uh, yes, I am a research professor. It, I write books, I do research, but I also teach. Okay. I've actually heard that some students think that because I'm a research professor, I don't teach. But just research. This is one way to do research, and yeah. I learn a lot from my students. So okay. I would be hesitant, very hesitant, to give up teaching altogether. But I do have a little more time for research, and uh, for which I'm very grateful. Yeah. And what are you teaching currently? I'm teaching Introduction to Theology, which is always a great pleasure because yeah. uh, the subject matter you, know, you can't miss, in my view. This is the good news of God and the gospel. So I have confidence in the subject matter, but I do have to be something of a cheerleader because it is a requirement. And there are some students that I think would like to get on to the good stuff, the practical work. Uh, but So my burden is to show that uh, everything we do as pastors uh, stems from, involves our understanding of who God is and yeah. who we are before God. So it's a great joy to introduce students to uh, theology. Yeah. So uh, I know that there's a, probably a lot of people listening that did not go to seminary and have never met a theologian personally. And uh, so what is the average day? I think people could have all kinds of images about what theologians do and what your life looks like day to day and that you sit in libraries and read old books and that's it, which there's probably some truth to that. But what does the average day look like for you? Uh, well, great question. I'm not sure I've been asked that before. And I'm sure that different theologians have different average days. I think, yes, our location is in the academy. But I don't think of myself as strictly an academic uh, okay. because I'm here in the academy to minister to the church. You know, yeah. uh, one of the gifts the risen Christ gives the church is pastors and teachers. And theologians historically have been called doctors of the church. They're the ones who train the pastors. And many times theologians have been pastors of churches. Right. What we have today strictly academic theologians is is uh, unusual. Mm -hmm. If I named off some of the great theologians from the past, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, these were all people who were pastors themselves, right. but they taught other pastors as well. So I'm a doctor of the church, uh, ministering to the body of Christ by educating its ministers. Yeah. And what has your ministry trajectory looked like up to this point? 
Have you, have you served as a pastor? Have you always served within a local church as well? Like, what do you do that is outside of the academy? So I'm a disciple. I, yeah. I want to follow Jesus in everything that I do. Yes. So one of the things that theologians do, does is ask, how do I glorify God in what I'm doing here? Yeah. Whether that's marriage or parenting or being a neighbor or teaching or writing a book, the ultimate aim for a theologian is always doxology. It's mm-hmm. always got to be for the glory of God. Um, but I've taught in different locations. I've taught in seminaries. I've also taught theology in secular universities in Scotland, and mm-hmm. I've taught at a liberal arts college, Wheaton College. So uh, it's always been a ministry of education. Um, I, I do think that learning can help uh, disciples become more mature. Absolutely. So it isn't to inflate people's heads. It isn't simply to add to the stock of what's ever in the Encyclopedia Britannica, right. you know, it's to make disciples. Yeah. I, I take it that Jesus' great commission to the church uh, is to make disciples, teaching them to. That's right. So, teaching them to obey, yes, but also to understand how to see themselves. Uh, so, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm all about. Education, not just as filling the mind, but uh, addressing the heart, habits of our lives, as well as our thinking. Yeah. I read an interesting piece about you uh, earlier today that was written in Christianity Today uh, in July of this year, and you were quoted as saying that you principally view yourself as one who practices the, quote, care of words, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit, on what that means. Sure. So, the theologian is uh, someone in the academy, and so I often have people say, well, what are you doing in a university, and what do you study? And the word means the study of God, but we can't inspect God directly. As a Christian theologian, what I spend most of my time thinking about and trying to study is the word of God, because God has made himself known to us. I can't reach God as a theologian. God has communicated to us. So I study his word. Mm -hmm. Um, I also minister understanding with words. So that's what I meant by I have to spend a lot of time with wordcraft. I'm dealing with God's word. I'm dealing with my words that are trying to make God's word as clear as possible. And I have to listen to my students' words when they ask questions and write papers. So the words are are tools for understanding. Yeah, that's good. Uh, You're someone who's widely respected. And also, meaning from in like various tribes, denominations, camps, but at times, and I learned a lot about this in the Christianity Today article, you've also been criticized at times from both the right and the left. And so is that, I was wondering why you think that might be, and I was wondering if you try to intentionally strive for this kind of third middle place that does not, or is it just simply that you're trying to bring fresh language to conservative thought and theology and that that makes both camps uncomfortable at times? That's a good question. Uh, And I'm not sure that I can be my own best analyst here. Okay. But I have thought about it. Uh, But one possibility is that I I haven't been clear enough, but again, I'm trying to be clear. I think what probably is happening, what I hope is happening is that it's a reflection of my listening hard to both sides. Uh, you know, I played sports in high school, and the tendency was to say that the other team always committed the fouls. Sure. But I knew my team <laughs> committed <Yeah>. fouls. <laughs> and it's the same even with, say, confessional traditions. Mm-hmm. 
I'm a Reformed theologian, but I can't honestly say that I think the Reformed theologians get it right and everybody else gets it wrong. Right. So maybe some people sense uh, either a lack of loyalty to a tradition or maybe some indecisiveness. But I, I think the golden rule for me in academics is do unto others positions and books yeah. as you would have them do unto yours. And the, what I would like people to do unto mine is, is work hard to understand it. So I try to teach my students that we need to be as charitable as possible to others, and only then can we be as critical as possible towards others. Charity has to come first. We have to make sure we've understood before we start making evaluations either of strengths or weaknesses. Do you think a lack of charity is a bigger problem now in the church and in academia than it has been in the past? Well, you're asking me in an election year, and it does seem, <laughs> yes. when I think about public discourse, it does seem to me that we're living in an increasingly polarized kind of world. Um, again, I, I've had sports teams where I've seen this. I lived in Britain where the newspapers themselves have political favorites. Hmm. The the newspapers in Britain yeah. line up with political parties. Um, so I think there there is something about the polarization of our society. Um, and maybe part of that is the fact that, uh, you know, thinking and listening and understanding takes time, and we're so busy, who has time <laughs> to understand your neighbor or your opponent? But uh, this is, uh, you know, I think civilization... Uh, will only be strengthened by people listening charitably before they criticize their neighbors. That's good. So that may be one of the reasons. Yeah. What When you think about your job and your responsibilities currently, what part of your job is most difficult for you? Well, uh, the study of God and representing God and His Word, uh, I don't take this lightly. I think the the... You know, all jobs might have risks, but no one yet that I've talked to is willing to insure me against idolatry or blasphemy. But this is the this is the occupational hazard of the theologian. I do yeah. not want to be guilty of inadvertent blasphemy or unintentional idolatry. But when you're speaking of God, this is a, an incredible thing we're doing. Right. And I want to make sure I, I get it right and that I'm faithful. I don't want to invent something new. My task is to be faithful, but yet to try to present these old truths in a fresh way that will communicate. Right. Who or what exactly inspired you to become a theologian? Was that sort of always your... I know that it's probably even more of a calling than it is a career, but when you were, you know early 20s and in school, did you always have this as a trajectory, or what exactly led you into the field that you're in now? Um, so I did not know uh, exactly what I wanted to be. I, I had interests that um, were right in front of me at the time, and so I made choices, you know, from year to year. I was mainly interested in New Testament studies in okay. college, in part because I had a, a very good teacher and a mentor. And so I would have to say that person inspired me uh, to 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 grasp the New Testament. Under him, it came alive in ways that it never had before. Hmm. And so I was going to be like him. And then he told me, don't be like me. There are enough New Testament scholars in the evangelical world. What we really need are systematic theologians. Yeah. And that hadn't occurred to me. 
But I look back to him and his insight into the kind of person I was, the kinds of questions I was asking, and he saw something there. And so really in faith, I launched out in that direction, hoping that my mentor was right. Yeah. So what, did you grow up in a Christian home? When did you come to faith? So, you, you talk with, so that mentor was in college? Uh, actually, he was a family friend oh, okay. from church. Okay. But he happened to be a New Testament college professor. Okay. So I knew him as, as a young boy. He baptized me when I was 10. Wow. I remember listening to sermons that he gave and making up my mind about the millennium when I was nine. <laughs> That's early. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was early. But he was an effective teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, it was largely through his inspiration, I think. Okay. The, are you from, where are you from originally? I'm Southern Californian. Southern California. Excellent. Uh, my parents are from San Diego, and we lived in Northern California for a season of time. So I was in the Middle Kingdom, the coastal kingdom of Santa Barbara. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, every vocation, I think, uh, I don't think I know, comes with certain heart liabilities. Like I know as a pastor, one of the things that I myself and I know other pastors have to be really careful of is sort of the um, living for the approval of others. Uh, and as a pastor, you can't uh, pull punches in the pulpit. You can't just preach themes that feel good to people in order to, you know, have people praise you and your preaching. But that's a real liability that exists in the heart of every single pastor. Um, and so when you think about your field that you're a part of as a theologian and as a scholar, what are the specific liabilities that you think might be common among scholars? I think you named it already. Uh, the word I use for it is status anxiety. Hmm. Whatever one is doing in the world, we want to be seen by others to be doing it well. And we usually have experts in a field that determine the status of something. And status anxiety is the feeling that you know you're not, you don't have a high enough esteem in somebody's eyes, and so you're worried about it, and then you begin to craft what you do and say to get that esteem from others, that is a huge danger in theology because we're to teach and preach not to please men, but God. Yeah. I do think status anxiety is a huge problem in the academy. Um, our self-worth too often is a function of how much we've done, how many articles we've written, what kind of prizes we've done. All of these things, I think, are, are, are terribly uh, dangerous for a theologian because I have felt the pull of compromising for the sake of getting ahead. Mm -hmm. And you could even rationalize it and say, well, I'll compromise here, but once I achieve this level, then I'm going to be a faithful spokesman right. for God. But the point is you never get high enough. <laughs> right. Status anxiety never goes away. So I think you have to nip it in the bud, and you have to remember that our status the only status that counts is secure in Christ. That's good. Every other status is an illusion. So when you when you write a piece or you write a book or an article and you get criticism and you get pushback, that's not easy for anybody. That I mean, there, I mean, I guess there are some people that really genuinely don't care what anyone thinks, but usually they don't have very many friends. Uh, so what's your process for dealing with that? <laughs> Because nobody likes to be criticized, how do you walk your own heart, your own mind? What's your process for, for mm. walking through criticism? Yeah, it's a, it can be a, a lonely valley for a while. Uh, it depends on the criticism. Some criticism, I think, 
missed the mark. You know, some criticism just didn't get it. That's on me. I must not have communicated enough. Other criticisms maybe hit the mark, and I think I need to reform this. I need to change. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, one of my heroes is Augustine, mm-hmm. because towards the end of his life, he published a book called Retractions, which he goes over everything that he was it has written, and then he says what he thought he did right and what he thought he did wrong. Interesting. I'm impressed by anybody who admits to having made mistakes. Yeah. So I have to admit mistakes that I've made. Uh, try not to make them again. Um, then there, there is some criticism where, you know, people just will disagree. And I, I take it hard because, not simply because I'd like them to agree with me, but it's, it's, uh, it's painful when Bible-believing, sincere Christians cannot agree about the truth. That I find very painful. And... Uh, I want to make sure that I do everything I can to minimize those moments. I think we can have legitimate disagreement about some things and still fellowship in in Christ's name. But, um, you know, I think if the criticism is such that it might be divisive or confusing, because I've been criticized a couple of times and uh, by someone I respect, and then my students will see this and they'll get confused, whose side should I be on, you know? Right. So that's, that's painful. Uh, but again, I, I, I'm grateful for criticism as well, and I find it actually precious. I mean, uh, you know, it's on my Christmas list. What do you want? I'd like to have some good criticism, please. I, mean, I don't get enough of it sometimes. Yeah. Good criticism, constructive yes. criticism, intended for my good and intended to strengthen my position, not the kind intended to you know, tear me down or just say I'm wrong. I, I think constructive criticism and the ability to give that is a precious gift. Yeah, that's good. Well, I want to talk about your new book, The Pastor's Public Theologian. Well, you co-authored it with Owen Strand. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what it is that you're trying to correct in this book. Right. Well, it, the book was Owen's idea, and he uh, picked up something that I had said. It was a, almost not a throwaway line, but it, was, it wasn't the main point of what I was talking about. But I, I was saying that the, uh, the pastor should be evangelicalism's default public intellectual, right. and preaching should be evangelicalism's premier form of biblical interpretation. And he was uh, intrigued by that comment and said, we should write a book about that. <laughs> and uh, I, I was busy, but he was persuasive. Yep. And what we're trying to recover is the idea that pastors are theologians. What's happened since modernity is that uh, the ch- pastors in the church have gone one way, and theologians in the academy have gone another, and there's an ugly ditch now between pastors and theologians. I don't think that serves the church. As I mentioned earlier, uh, in the old days, the teachers were pastors often, right. uh, whether they were bishops or, or, or pastors of churches, they were the theologians often. So we're trying to recover something we feel has been lost because of increasing specialization mm-hmm. in our age and the way that um, academic departments have become kind of professionalized and separated and fragmented. Right. And one of the things that you argue that I thought was intriguing is that in many ways, pastors have lost their bi- the biblical identity of their office, and it could largely be because of the 
the way that we are so focused on so many specific things now. But can you elaborate on that a little bit and then yeah. help me understand what that identity primarily should be? Right. So uh, my, my hunch, and I'm not happy about having to make this hunch, but just observing what I see and listening to people, I think what's happened is our culture has affected the way our congregations think about pastors. And so the tendency has become to see pastors, or the senior pastor at least, as a CEO, Mm -hmm. the chief executive officer of this institution that works uh, like other institutions with programs and people. And so the the pastor becomes a manager, an administrator. These are secular models of leadership. Right. So it may be surprising, but but our, our hunch is that the church is experiencing the effects of secularization in the place where you might least expect it. That is our picture of the pulpit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was our that was our initial hunch. And others have been saying similar things to this. We wanted to go beyond just complaining right. and saying, let's recover the biblical image, which I think is is that of a shepherd. Uh, God is a shepherd to Israel. The Lord is our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the fe- uh, the sheep. Uh, Jesus tells Peter, "Feed my sheep." Right. So, but so if a pastor is a shepherd, the main thing you're doing is you're looking out for the welfare of a flock. That is real people. Right. And so, in our, the title of our book is the pastor as public theologian, and public simply means people, a theologian mm-hmm. who works with people. And to watch over them, to keep them safe, to guide them, to lead them uh, in the ways of righteousness. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In the Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates. But here's what's great for In the Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help, and now back to the conversation. What I gathered from reading was that you're specifically calling pastors back to an identity of being theological intellectuals, that, the, that theology is, because it's, it's not just pastoral care um, as far as like the felt needs that people have, sure. but I, because you're talking about the divide between theologians and pastoral ministry and then pastors being public theologians, mm-hmm. it seems like there's a strong call back to being people who are committed to theology. And yes. so, would you agree with that? Oh, of course, yeah. yes. Uh, and I'm glad you gave me a chance to answer my, this question again. <laughs> um, because there are lots of public servants in yes. society. So, just to say the pastor is a public worker 
doesn't go far enough. Lots of people work with people. Uh, we, we speak of public servants and we have departments of public works and so on. The church does something with its public, a congregation, that no other public service sector does. And what we're doing, I think, is we're representing the kingdom of God on earth, mm -hmm. and we're forming citizens for that kingdom. It's a very different task. But that's a theological project because it involves making disciples, it involves the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. and the word of God is the constitution. So unless pastors know God the Word of God and the Kingdom of God, all theological matters, right. uh, they can't really do the specific task for which they're called, which is to form holy nations right. in the midst of foreign nations. So if there's a pastor listening who, even, even in the midst of this, is thinking like, wow, I really am functioning more as a CEO than this public theologian that you're describing, are there specific theological categories that you would encourage pastors into like these are these are the categories that th the pastor is going to need to understand in order to best shepherd the people that God's entrusted to them. yeah a great question it's, it's a it's a long question okay uh, that's why we had to write a book and not yeah. an essay but um, so there's a, a few things that I think need to be done here First of all, you, you want your congregation to understand why the church is here. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to ask the question of prospective students and prospective pastors, why is there church rather than nothing? Mm -hmm. What are we here for? What kind of a service organization are we? Um, so, to, to think about the nature and mission of the church, you've got to have an ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. You should be able to answer from Scripture why the church is here. Why is Jesus interested in church? Mm -hmm. So we need to be able to answer that question of ecclesiology. We've already talked about the question of, of God. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also trying to help people understand who they are in Christ. We have to understand the story of Christ. I mean, we're, we're, the church is centered around the gospel. Part of the role of the pastor is to preach the good news. The world needs some good news, but you need to have theological understanding in order to explain this good news. What is it? And so the other theological category I would say we need is Christology. We need to be able to identify Jesus as Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ isn't his second name. You, know, you, <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't go looking for Jesus in a phone book under C. Right. You know, it's an office. He's the Messiah. What does that mean? Yeah. Why Jesus? Why this man? And what does it mean to say that the church is the body of Christ? These are all theological questions Absolutely. about the nature of our God, the nature of our church, human nature. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that are theological. The other thing that I think is, is increasingly important is we need to help congregations understand the world we live in. Because I believe that the world we live in, culture, is is shaping our spirits. We, we tend to think of the church as a place for spiritual formation. In fact, culture is the pace of spiritual formation. Most people's spirits are formed by living in culture. Their desires, their thinking, their ways of living, often they're formed by culture. I think part of the theological task is to name these powers and principalities and then to assess whether they contribute to God's kingdom or hinder it. 
So do you think that <clears throat> rather than pastors to some extent standing in the gap and naming and fighting against the cultural um, formation that is coming are are more and more if, if pastors are not leading out of a theological place are they just joining with culture and using culture to I mean because if you don't have these categories that you're describing from mm-hmm. what place do you see most pastors seeking to quote unquote shepherd their congregations from well, that's a great question I'm not sure I'm in a position to to generalize too much but there are large swaths it seems of the church where we have bought into cultural pictures about the good life. And so, like the health and wealth gospel says, you can have the American dream by contributing into the offering plate or by doing something to please God. The American dream is not the kingdom of God. Right. So, uh, but I I don't want to give the impression that the church is simply against culture. What I want to suggest is that pastors at least need to raise the consciousness of their congregations to see who is, you know, who is forming you, you know, right. whose script are you following? We have a holy script, scripture, mm-hmm. and it's set apart, it's holy, because we're to follow this script for um, the good, towards the good of the gospel, and not some other. My fear is that uh, American Christians are following other scripts. Yeah. You know, how to, get, how to become successful, how to become powerful, how to become wealthy. These are other scripts, and, and there are lots of people who will sell you their script, you know, for a few dollars, or who will teach you how to follow their script, where the pastor is trying to help people to follow a script that is the way of Jesus. Yeah. Well said. Um, what would you say to a young person who is aspiring to vocational ministry, but maybe aspiring to this more modern, uh, as you've argue, argued, unbiblical pastoral identity? That's a big concern for me. If that has become, if this is becoming increasingly normative, when we, when we, when young people are picturing pastoral ministry, they're picturing something that is unbiblical. So, uh, potentially anyway, so what would you say aspiring pastors should be considering even before pursuing preparation for ministry? Uh, Again, a very important question. I think every aspiring pastor, everyone considering it, needs to be very honest with himself before God uh, as to whether you're thinking about being a pastor in terms of career or vocation. Mm Mm-hmm. Is it, is it in response to a calling of God, which is a call to take up the cross of Christ? There may not be all that much that's glamorous about it. Uh, I had a friend once who said he wanted to be the pastor of a megachurch. And I said, well, why, why a megachurch? And he said, well, I, wanted to, I want to have a successful ministry. Mm. And, and I was saying, well, whose criteria of success says that big, mega, equals success? Mm-hmm. Could you not be a successful minister of a microchurch? Yeah. Is that a possibility? Yeah. You know, the, the wisdom of the cross is kind of topsy-turvy when it comes to the wisdom of the world. So what does success look like before God? Um, what does faithfulness look like? But again, are you pursuing a career or, or a vocation? Mm-hmm. And I've been helped by Eugene Peterson on this, who distinguishes vocation as uh, the call to magnify God's name and career which is a trajectory about magnifying your own name. Mm. 
and you know we've been taught those of us who've been to graduate school and other kinds of school how to push yourself ahead you know how to improve your cv it's all about self promotion mm-hmm. the pastorate is not about self promotion yeah and you've got to be ruthlessly honest here and make sure that your motivation is not self promotion that's good that that is for the pastor like the temptation for the theologian to create an idol and call it God. We, yeah. we don't want to make that fundamental mistake. Yeah. Uh, it seems like, sadly, more and more churches are increasingly atheological, uh, if not even at times anti-theological. Um, most Christians, I think that, unfortunately, this is safe to say most, most Christians aren't reading theology because they view it as dry or maybe unimportant. It doesn't really hold any practical implication in my life. Mm-hmm. And so the truth is, because of attention span, and and honestly, I believe the reading level of a lot of people, um, a lot of theological writing that is even very, very good lacks accessibility to the average person. So how do you bridge, how do we bridge that gap? Who who are the people in your mind that are writing good, like popular level theology? Or do you just think people just need to push through and figure it out? (laughs) Oh, good. Good question. Uh, the, so the first thing I want to say, because you're right about people having a bias against doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dull. It's dry. It may be even deadly. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is against life. And I, I know what they're talking about. I, I've read the kind of theology that doesn't seem to have anything to do with real life. But the best theology is not like that, I don't think. Yeah. Let me start here, though. The first thing to say is that nobody can avoid doctrine. Mm -hmm. If you aren't reading theology, you're being indoctrinated by something else. I think that's the first thing to say. Everybody holds to some doctrines. The only question is, are they according to the scriptures or not? Whose doctrine are we following? We're all following some doctrines. Sometimes, you know, in economics or politics, you'll actually hear the name, the Monroe Doctrine. Mm -hmm. They'll name it. But even if you don't have it a name, we're still following somebody's teaching. We're still following somebody's script. So, in my own work, uh, knowing, having taught theology for 20 years, I, I know that even theology students have this bias against theology too often. So I've written a couple of books that have tried to attack that head-on, and I can talk about those if you'd like. But you asked the question, um, you know, do we push on through or do we try to write at a certain level? I I think it's both directions. Um, The Protestant church has always been at the forefront of educating lay people. And I think that's important. We Mm -hmm. want to raise the standards of literacy because it's the great... Protestant insight that that people, uh, everybody can read the Bible for him or herself. It should be in the context of the church. It should be under the, you know, the teaching of a pastor. But but everybody gets to do this. We get to engage God's word. But we need to be literate <laughs> to do this. Right. So everybody, you know, we should be working towards higher standards of literacy in the church. At the same time, I do think that. Uh, theologians need to be writing in the ways that communicate. Uh, we obviously need people to write at various levels, but, but some should be writing at, at levels that communicate. And I don't see why those couldn't be pastors. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, I've advocated for pastor theologians. Right. They know their people well. Do any pastors or theologians come to mind that you think are doing that well currently? Well, you know, um, 
John Piper does write at a certain level. Tim mm-hmm. Keller is popular, but he's also I mean, there are real arguments. There's substance to what he's yeah. writing, um, and then from the academic standpoint, Tom Wright is an academic, but he can write in ways that communicate uh, the, the way C.S. Lewis could to mm-hmm. to large numbers of people. So, yeah, there are there are those, but maybe not enough. I think there's. Either uh, a lot of theology is too academic, and then a lot of theology is too popular. <laughs> yeah, and so there is a sweet spot that I think we're trying to work towards, and it's harder. I think it's mm-hmm. harder to get there. Yeah, I've been trying to write a short book for years. <laughs> <laughs> Which of your books would you would you encourage to people that specifically for their accessibility? Well, uh, I would say it's a book called Faith Speaking Understanding. And it is it is shorter than my other things, my other books, and I, I wrote it for people, lay people who have a serious thirst for theology. Um, it, I'm getting mixed feedback as to how accessible it is. Okay, but uh, that's my most accessible one that I can list. Okay, all right. Last question. Thank you so much for your time. But what are the two or three books that you'd say every pastor? Maybe even every Christian. I know that that's just a, a difficult question, but just off the top of your head, because we'll link all the books that you've talked about in the show notes, but two or three books that you'd say every pastor, maybe even every Christian, should read outside the Bible. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I have a real hard time with these things. Do you? Uh, because... Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of something that's realistic, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I would want to say classics like Augustine and so yeah. on, but I'm not sure that's that's realistic. Uh, what, what maybe another way to frame it would be: What have been a couple books, just on a, at a personal level for you, a couple of books that have made the greatest impact on you personally? I would uh, Mirror Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I think is still a, a fine book. work. He's an excellent writer. He gets us to look at things that are familiar in new ways, but there's insight there and depth. You can read it more than once. Mm-hmm. The The books that I would want to recommend could be read well more than once. Yeah. Um, and there, yeah. Um, what other, what other one could I think of? Well, Calvin's Institutes. Yeah. Uh, since you're giving me the opportunity, if sure. I can put in a plug for that. Uh, Calvin's Institutes. He, uh, you may have heard things about Calvin that make him sound overly academic, but in fact, it's very pastoral. It's very edifying, and I think it's clear. He writes in short sections, so you can pick it up and put it down. Yep. Uh, unlike some other people who, you know, you have to read the whole chapter to get the point. Right. So let's leave it at that. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and uh, Calvin's, Calvin's Institutes. Institutes. Excellent. Well, so much uh, great content here. Thank you so much for your time and for this new book. And uh, we'll do everything we can to get the word out about it, but we're very grateful for you. So and thanks. thank you for making the time. Appreciate it. My thanks to Dr. Van Hooser for taking the time to chat. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. As always, I hope you found it helpful. I'd love to hear your feedback about this episode. So drop me an email at ryan at redemptionbc.org and let me know what you thought. Don't forget to stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for all the ways for you and I to stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll also find any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I count it an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.